You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to all of you. Um, My name is uh, Jason. I I am one of the pastors here at Park. Uh, I don't have uh, any announcements for you today, but I would, uh, before I, I pray for us, I would like to maybe... I'll just give you a short word. Um, a lot of times when someone is looking at a text that they're going to teach or preach, a lot of times they stop and ask that the Lord would allow that text to have its way with them, to, to mold them and shape them and change them where it needs to be before they stand in front of anyone and teach that or preach that. Um, as I've been prepping for Psalm 126, uh, I feel like the Lord's been doing that. And, and there, I have a burden, I would say maybe a, it's a good burden, but a burden on my heart. I feel a little bit like Alice kind of uh, tumbling down a good rabbit hole. Uh, I feel like the Lord is really doing some things on me this past week, uh, and even doing some things as I have to stand here and, and preach this. But I also want you to know, in no way am I at the bottom of that rabbit hole trying to preach back up uh, to you. I still feel like I am in some ways, again, in a good way, but I am still tumbling down that rabbit hole. Uh, And so hopefully this comes across well and not like absolutely inarticulate and like clearly Jason's in a rabbit hole somewhere. So (laughs) pray with me if you would. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, we know that one verse can do so many things to us. To one, it might encourage. To another, it might convict. And perhaps even in the same person, it would encourage and convict. It does so many things. And and multiple verses together do so many different things to us. And so... Lord, you know how I'm doing. You know how everyone who came in here this morning is doing. Would you use uh, this passage and other passages that we're going to look at? Lord, would you use those to meet people where they're at, to encourage where that needs to be, to convict where conviction might need to be? Lord, would, um, would you allow my words to be uh, flavored with your character, Christ? please. And if I say anything that shouldn't rest on someone's soul, would you let that slide away? Pray that that would not stick. Um, Lord, 
be with us here this morning. We know that you are. Even as I ask for you to be with we know that you are. Would our hearts be near to you? First in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you uh, close your Bibles, go ahead and uh, open it back up to Psalm 126. We're going to spend a, a little bit here just in the first part looking at the psalm itself and then kind of move towards uh, some, some application part. But we're going to start at the beginning, just kind of work through this, the six verses that we have. First, some context. The psalm is anonymous. We don't necessarily know who wrote it. There's some, perhaps some guesses for some commentators here and there, but it's an anonymous psalm, whereas some are from David or of David. Some are of the sons of Korah. This one is anonymous. We don't necessarily know who wrote it. But there are some very similar themes in Psalm 126 that we see in other psalms of ascent. For instance, we have crying out to the Lord. We have a crying out and asking God for deliverance. We have a recalling of what God has done in the past, reminding God's people of some of the past blessing that he had done for his people, and then praying for future blessing or praying that God would bless them in the present with his presence and with the restoration of his people. So we have some similar themes to some other Psalms of Ascent. Let's take a specific look at, it's kind of broken up into a couple of different parts. Those first three verses are more of a past recollection. What has God done for us? So let's read those again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So again, a recollection that God had done past things for Israel. We don't know, again, the the historical context for the psalm, we're not exactly sure about. Some translations will actually take that first verse, and instead of saying, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, and it will say, when the Lord led the captives back to Zion, could be a post-exilic psalm. We don't necessarily know, but we know that whatever it was, the Lord had rescued his people from something terrible, and he had restored them through miraculous means. So he had restored the well-being of his people and restored his presence to them. Psalm 85, I think, gives a little bit of clarity to that restore our fortunes, O Lord. Psalm 85 starts with, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. So can we have Israel and the psalmist asking the Lord or recalling that the Lord had done things in the past. And then the end of verse one is, when the Lord had restored their fortunes in the past, it was like we we were like those who dream. The imagery here is somewhat similar to what we see in Acts 12. In Acts 12, Uh, Peter's in prison, the angel comes to rescue him, and the text there says, he, Peter, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought maybe he was seeing a vision. It's almost like it's, what's happening is too good to be true. It's it's almost like it's a mirage. It's it's what, what is being done is almost 
too believable for it to be real. We were like those who dream. And then mouths. We have mouths. When the Lord had restored our fortunes, we were, our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Um, I was a, a theater major in college. Some of you that know me well, that probably doesn't surprise you. I was a theater major in college for about two years. And I really liked musicals. I was in a couple musicals, and I really love going to Broadway musicals now. But I had a professor in college say that um, what happens in musicals is the emotion that's being felt, whether it is sadness, uh, anger, joy, whatever is being felt by the character is so much, it's so exuberant, it can't just be spoken like you would in a play. It has to be sung. I think this is some of the imagery here. Like what what the Lord had done, it was too good to be true almost. And we couldn't just talk about it. Our mouths were filled with laughter at how amazing it was. Our tongues were just filled with shouts of joy and delight. In the end of verse 2, going into verse 3, Then they said among the nations, when the Lord had restored our fortunes, they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Whatever it was that the Lord had done to restore them, the pagan nations that surrounded them looked on and said, that's the Lord of the, of the Israelites. That's the Lord doing those things. And he not only did them, he did them for somebody. He did them for his people. Imagine it. It's pagan nations looking at what, the God, what God had done and saying, that's Yahweh. That's the Lord of the Israelites. That's the Lord of Israel. He's doing those things. And then in verse 3, it's, it's the psalmist and the Israelites themselves saying, the Lord has done great things for us. They themselves are recognizing it is our God that is doing these things for us. And then the end of that says, we are glad. Some translations there say, we are joyful. We recognize that the Lord has done these things and we are joyful. So that's kind of the past there. They're they're recollecting, they're recalling in those first three verses. And then verse four is whatever's happening in the moment when this is written, it's present. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. You've done it in the past. Now restore our fortunes, O Lord. And then the, the imagery there at the end of that verse is like streams in the Negev. The Negev is a rather dry region in southern Israel. Uh, it's arid. Uh, streams of water would generally not be what you would see there. The imagery is... is, is uh, the psalmist asking the Lord to bring restoration to, the, uh, to his people in places that you wouldn't necessarily see it and with immediate kind of rushing restoration or rushing action. Again, I think Psalm 85 gives even a little bit more here. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? 
Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. From there, so we have that, uh, the imagery there of, Lord, would you restore our fortunes like rushing waters through a desert? And then we get a different picture of restoration in kind of, uh, in verses five and six. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Sometimes God's work of restoration is quick, like rushing streams that are running through a barren desert. Much of the time, however, God's work is, uh, of restoration is slow. It's like a farmer who sows his seed with blood, sweat, and tears, having to wait to see, is that crop going to actually come up? Or if it's, uh, say, a rancher who instead of uh, farming crops, uh, does ranching for animals, will my animals survive? Uh, Will they make it through to the market, and will there actually be a market to sell said animals? That work is often slow, it's tiresome. You could lose a whole crop. I mean, we have farmers now that are, they are abandoning whole fields of crops because there's no water. Setbacks, tears sown, trials, suffering, and pain that are experienced, joy reaped when that harvest actually does come. That work of restoration is slow. It's often painful. But there's oftentimes joy that comes when that harvest does actually come. So that's kind of the context for the psalm. Here's maybe where we start to get into some of the burden that I have When I was prepping for this, I I reached out to a friend uh, and and asked her for her thoughts, her input, anything that she saw in the psalm uh, that would be of particular interest in any kind of prayer she had. Uh, I was on the phone with her earlier this week, and she was sharing some things with me, and she said something that was not even the main thing of what she said, but it just gnawed at my soul I mean that in a good way, but not at my soul for most of this week. Amidst everything that she kind of shared with me, she said, Jason, I find myself wondering, what is it that the Israelites haven't done? Why is it that they're so often in a place of crisis? Why, why is it? It's good that they're crying out for the Lord, but why is it that they're so often in a place of needing to have the Lord restore their fortunes? Have they failed to do something? That just stuck with me throughout most of this week. And I'm a question question asker by uh, nature anyway. And so um, that question stuck with me. Uh, And I think it's kind of where I want to go here. We look at Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13, It gives us a little bit, or beginning to uh, pull back the curtain for us on, uh, has has, has Israel not done something? Have they failed to do something? Here's Jeremiah 2, starting in verse 11. 
My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So through the prophet, the Lord is saying, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've left me. I am the fountain of living water. I am where my people should find joy and hope and life. And they have neglected that. And instead, they've turned to broken cisterns that hold no water. They have made for themselves other gods. They've chased after other gods. They've chased after other idols, hoping that they might find joy and life, forgiveness there. So then I ask myself another question. What does turning from the Lord and turning to idolatry bring rise to in the people of Israel? Here's Isaiah 3.8. Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They've abandoned him, they've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and they've chased after other things. What has that resulted in? Their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And we have several places in the Old Testament where God mentions specifically some of the speech and deeds of his people. Here's Isaiah 10, starting in verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Here's Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 5. And as I read this, this is going to be the Lord saying, if you do this, but consider what they're not doing that he's saying, you're not doing these things, right? If you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Last one I have for you is Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, 
The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Israel had abandoned God, and so often God had said, okay, this is going to be the result. You're going to be taken away. This is what's going to happen to you, and my presence is going to be removed from you. Another, then the next gnawing question for me. And before I even get there, let me maybe pause, because this will take us maybe even further down into... Ugh. It's a hard place. I know the world is full of good things. I sat up here at the 9 a.m. service, and Judah Efkin was behind me with his parents. He's a little guy. And as the whole congregation is singing, he's making noises that sound a lot like singing. And I found myself in tears just listening to a baby worship. It's pretty remarkable. I know that God is on the move and doing things. So now, my subsequent gnawing question. Has much changed since from ancient Israel to now? Might we still carry with us some of the same speech and some of the same deeds that are against the Lord and that defy his glorious presence? Consider this. We still have overwhelming effects of sin in this world. Murder, coveting, oppression, injustice. We have poverty, and we have systems of poverty, or we have systems that keep people in poverty. Widows, fatherless, longing to know from where their care is going to come from. Racism, still alive and well in our country. We have women and children every day treated like objects. Shepherds, pastors, leaders of God's people who today steward their power to their own ends and for their own means. You don't have to go far on your Facebook or your news feed to find that. We have division and hatred. And lest we think, yes, Jason, but those are all like generally on the outside, that is alive and well in the church. Ecclesiastes, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 9, the preacher of Ecclesiastes writes this. What has been, what has been, is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And then almost as if to consider, maybe, maybe there might be something that's new. The preacher says, is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new right here. It's already been in the ages before us. It seems clear to me that we still have some of the same speech some of the same deeds, 
even and perhaps especially within those who profess to be of God's people that were appalling to God. So, I think there's some similarities. I think we still have some of the same fruit. What might be different? What might be different about our situation today? What might be different uh, now than it was in, in, in ancient Israel? There's probably a lot of things, but I want to bring attention to a couple differences that I see. One glorious truth, and then I have more gnawing convictions for you. Sorry. Here's the glorious truth. Massive difference. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. In conjunction with that, let me read Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, from what we just read from Isaiah, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That glorious truth is that the long-awaited Savior has come. The Old Testament is looking, the prophets are looking forward to him. They are, they are uh, testifying to him. They're looking forward, forward to that day. We're on this side. The, the promised Holy Spirit where the Lord said, I will put in them a new spirit. I will, I will uh, take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That's done. Praise God. The Holy Spirit promised was given at the day of Pentecost, we who sit here and we profess to believe that we, we, we by faith have been rescued, now have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us. That's a massive difference. Big, big difference. Brings me another question though. Jesus has come, he's died for us, the Spirit has, given, has been given to us why do I not seem all that different than my non-believing neighbors? Why do, and again, I'm, I'm preaching as much to myself. I'm not at the bottom of that rabbit hole looking up. Like, why do I not look much different than those around me? Why is it that the church so often hurts others as we profess the truths of Scripture. There's absolutely uh, things in this book that are offensive. If we are preaching the truth to the nations, to the non-believers in our life, and to one another, 
If we are professing them and it is the truth in here that offends, so be it. The Lord says that will happen. If, however, we are preaching it in a harsh, demeaning, jerkish way, and people walk away from us or reject us or look at the church and say, those people are messed up and I don't think the Lord is with them, that's on us. Why amongst professing believers is there so much strife and division? Two words, strife and division, that are found not in Paul's fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, but in the works of the flesh. Why is there so much strife and division? Why is there so much hatred that comes out of God's people, either to one another or toward those who are outside the church? Why do we carry so much fear? I don't know about you. The older I get, the more I walk with Jesus. Yes, I would say the Lord is absolutely um, sanctifying me and moving me into more Christ-like character. But for me, as that happens, the more I see how much I live my life out of fear. What is so-and-so gonna think of me? What is this person gonna, what, what if this doesn't happen? What if you don't actually do these things, Lord? Something seems to be, I think, in short supply within God's people now. Repentance, sorrow, a, a reverent fear. Maybe it's just a trust that the Lord truly is who he says he is. And that's why I, and to the extent that's you, we fear so much. But there's another thing that I'm convicted at as I read through this passage, and I've spent time in this uh, passage. There's another thing that I'm convicted by when I got to this point, and it's that I have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in me, and I don't think that I pray like the psalmist prays here. Like, he, like the Israelites are calling out to the Lord, restore our fortunes. Restore to us your presence such that you would do miraculous things amongst us. They're, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me. They're praying in ways that, if I'm honest, I just don't pray. But part of that wrestling for me this week has been, I want to. I want to. I want to change. I want to pray differently. I want to be expectant that the Lord is going to do things, not just for us, where our, 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 we, we would be like those who dream, or that our mouths would be filled with laughter, but that the surrounding nations, the non-believers, let's say of Denver, let's start small, of Denver would look at us and say, the Lord is doing amazing things there. The Lord has done great things for them. These people are laying down their life, not just for one another, but for enemies. For those who are very, very different than them, this people lays down 
their life for them. Jesus is the one by whom God's people have been restored to the Father. Jesus is the one who rescues us from captivity to sin, as well as to every other thing that enslaves us. Think fear, think anxiety. Jesus is the one who acts on our hearts in such a way that we choose others over ourselves. He brings dead people to life. Here's maybe where I want to like encourage you even more. Is that regeneration from death to life any less a miracle than the Lord's parting of the Red Sea so that his people could walk through it? Is it any less a miracle than his bringing his people back from a powerful nation in their captivity back to their homeland? I think as we consider how hard it is in this life to cease to do evil, learn to do good, how hard it is to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless, and to plead the widow's cause, for me, I would say the answer is no. It is not any less of a miracle. The bringing back from, or the regeneration of a dead heart, as Ephesians would say, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The bringing from, to life of a dead heart is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And I really don't want to live another day of my life without being absolutely undone by that. But I don't want to stop there. I don't want to stop being amazed by that. That's incredible. I want to be a person and a people that are looking for and praying for miracles every day such that we would be undone by them, we would be made joyful for them, and the surrounding non-believers would say, the Lord is with those people. There are probably lots of different miracles if we actually took the time to stop and pray for them. And there, I want to acknowledge, there may be some of you here in this room, you do already. Praise God for you. Please get coffee with me because I could obviously learn from you. But my sense is that this is an area where it'd be good for us to grow for most of us. Here's one for me. This is one that I'm passionate about. You can be passionate about this. You don't have to be passionate about this. But here's one for me. I believe that it would be a dream. Like, how could it possibly be real? if the Lord were to move in amazing ways that unify his people, the church, into what he wants to accomplish and into what he wants to do through us. Imaging and reflecting Jesus, repenting of our selfishness and our arrogance, learning to do good, seeking justice, correcting oppression, finding our righteousness in Christ and not in our own wisdom. So dreamlike would it be if non-believers around us were to see how we live and how we act and have nothing else that they could do but declare the Lord is with those people. The Lord has done great things for them. And my prayer for us as a church, 
this week and, and, and moving forward is that Denver would look at us as a local expression of God's people and be left saying, the Lord has done great things for them. Look at the way that they interact with one another. Look at the way they have differences, but they work them out because they have a foundation that's found in the Lord. They can talk through differences that they have. Gosh, wouldn't that be something? I'm convicted though because, again, because what that would require is such a radical dependence on the Lord, and I'm not there yet. I wanna be, but I'm, I know I'm not there yet. And the second thing that I think it would require is a exuberant, is, feels like it is such an overwhelming understatement here, an exuberant prayer life. On our knees, asking, Lord, please restore our fortunes. Restore our fortunes. Restore our well-being. Restore your presence to us such that we would follow and we would lay our lives down for those around us and those who don't believe, who are not part of your people, would be left saying, the Lord is with them and their God is legit. I ask that we would be a, a praying people who pray for restoration, who pray for it like streams that come through a desert in like an immediate rush, and who also understand that the Lord oftentimes works through slow, painful things. That means the Lord slowly breaks our selfishness and our sin off of us. He breaks slowly at times off of us this notion that we have it all together and that we know it all correctly. And we would be more dependent on him. And as he breaks those things off, we are made more and more and more into Christ's character. That's my prayer for us. I want that. I recognize that I am not there, but I want to be there. Do you? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, there is a uh, there is a temptation I think that we have, and I'm. Uh, I feel aware of it as I end this sermon, uh, a temptation to uh, hear perhaps areas where we're not doing it well and then being crushed by them. I pray that wouldn't be us. We could, uh, our, that, that, that our foundation in you and what you have done for us, Jesus, would be so rock solid we know that we are loved by God the Father because our righteousness has been given to us because of what Christ has done, because of our faith in it, that that foundation would be so sure, so steady for us that we would be a people who can say, now, where do I still not get it right? Where do I need to grow? Where do I need to heal so that I can grow? Where do I need to change? Where do we as a church body, need to change. And then we can be honest with ourselves because our identity is so sure. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would change us uh, as individuals uh, as, as, uh, and as a church such that those, increasingly so, those from the outside, those non-believers uh, in our city who I might come here or maybe they interact with us in various parts throughout the city are left saying, the Lord has done great things for them. There must be something to this because they look so radically different than anywhere else in society. I see elements of everybody in society in that group, but they act differently. They talk differently. They pray expectantly for miraculous things. The Lord is with them. So Lord, do that. Do that in us, please. We recognize we can't do that work ourselves. That is only you, Lord, that does that work. So please move and act in us as individuals and as a collective church body representing you here, Lord. Do that in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.